chapter 7 this morning. We are this morning going to cover a very large section of verses, 53 verses, as a matter of fact. I know, I think this is like a record for me. Yeah, exactly. But it is one long story that Stephen is telling in the form of a message, and it's important that we get the entire package. Before we get going in the text, though, let's have a word of prayer, and then we can uh, look at the passage together. So let's pray. Lord, help us this morning as we read and study this very long passage that we will, it is, it is a sermon of Stephen's. I pray that you will help us to recognize the point of the message. And Lord, I pray that you will help us not to uh, get lost in the detail, uh, although the details are important. I pray that you will help us to recognize uh, what Stephen is trying to emphasize. And as we recognize that, Lord, I pray that you will help us not to, again, merely see it as a history lesson, but we will recognize that, as has been said so often, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so, Lord, I pray you will draw us close to you, draw us into repentance and worship and love and fellowship. In your name I pray. Amen. So we have 53 verses to look at this morning in Acts chapter 7. If you've been following along, you know that Stephen has been arrested. He's tried to solve the problem between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews. Has not had success. The Hellenistic Jews seemingly are very unhappy with his decisions. They uh, tried to fight him. They tried to argue with him. But because Stephen was deep in wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit, he was able to wither or to withstand, I'm sorry, their attacks. And he was able to stand strong and present the truth. At which point in time, in their anger, they turned from Stephen and they turned to the leaders of the temple. That is the council. And, and so at the end of chapter 7, I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 6, you discover, or you learn, or are reminded of the reality that Stephen now has been arrested. After his arrest, he's brought before the council, and he is told he needs to present his defense. Now, before we actually read the text, let me just say this. It is a large section of verses. It is easy to lose ourselves in all the details. We're not going to do so this morning. As a matter of fact, I think too often we've done that in Acts chapter 7. We've lost ourselves in the details, and we've got caught up in the things that we shouldn't get caught up in, and instead we miss the very things that Stephen is emphasizing. Remember, Stephen's making a defense. The accusation has been given at the end of chapter 6, correct? Does anybody remember what the accusations were? It's twofold. Well, more specifically, you're right, Jim, but look at it real quickly. Uh, starting in verse 13 of the previous chapter, and they set up false witnesses who said, and now we're going to find out what the specifics are, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the holy place is referring to the temple, okay, and the law. That is, of course, the five books, generally speaking, the five books of the law. Specifically, obviously, when you're, whenever in the Old Testament, especially they talk about the law, the target of the law is what? The Ten Commandments and, and, and also the entirety of Deuteronomy. Good, Ken. Uh, so we see he never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Those are the accusations. So it's, they're accusing him of coming against the temple, uh, coming against the law, and actually it's a threefold thing because it's also accusing him of coming against the lawgiver, which in this case is not Yahweh, it is who? Moses. The accusations he's coming against Moses. Stephen is going to give this message as a refutation of the accusation. So it's important we understand the accusations in order to understand the refutation. That is his defense. Does that make sense? So let's read it, and then we'll work our way through it. Again, we're going to breeze over a lot of what we see in this text. We're going to target the specific things that need to be emphasized. Starting in verse 1, And the high priest said, obviously speaking to Stephen, Are these things so? Now, it's important we recognize that that's just not a casual question, is it? This is an accusatory question. This is a, a question being asked like a judge would be asking the question. 
Exactly. How do you plead? And Stephen said, verse 2, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go from your land and from your kindred, and go into a land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. Now, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Now, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed... His Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them had been wronged, he defended and oppressed the man. He, uh, I'm sorry. He defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why do you wrong one another? But the men who was wronging his neighbor, I'm sorry, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. When the Lord said to him, then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who has made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angels who appeared to him in the bush. The angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. 
This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in your congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the land that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet... The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my, my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those whom, who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Can I just say as a free aside, as, as we, before we get into, into the text in pieces that we want to look at this morning, that's a pretty potent message, isn't it? I mean, do, you, do you sense that, that Stephen kind of pulls out all the stops? you get it? It's kind of interesting because actually, according to modern understandings of how to preach a message, Stephen bombs miserably. He really does. Because you're always supposed to give hope. You're always supposed to, you know... Uh, give good introduction, which he does do, but then build to a crescendo and then, then bring it off into into uh, a, a nice application. You know, and it's like, there's no hope here. And as a matter of fact, there's no bringing it off into application, is there? It's just like, build, 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 crescendo. You guys are evil. Let's pray. <laughs> I mean, that's how the message goes, doesn't it? Because he doesn't say, let's pray. You get the idea. Again, an aside, it's definitely not a modern style of message, is it? You know, we, we, we have these ideas about how messages ought to be preached, but these messages we've been seeing so far are pretty painful, aren't they? They're pretty rough. And you can say, well, yeah, but they're being preached to unsaved people, right? Well, yeah. But you find later on, even, I mean, my goodness, does, does not Paul and Peter and James and... And, and John, aren't they still doing the same thing? Yeah, I mean, it's stunning to see. I mean, the messages are rough. They're uncomfortable. They're powerful. They're, 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 they're if they say it this way, these messages are being presented to tear down strongholds, aren't they? I mean, that's the point. They're not to soothe. They're not to make people feel good. They're to tear something down. And ultimately, we're to tear down what? The kingdom of darkness and bring in what? The kingdom of light. Do you hear that? I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it? It's, that's an, a freebie and aside, but I think it's important that we recognize that. Well, there's a lot there in, in chapter 7. So I'm just going to uh, uh, present several things to you. It is interesting that you notice. I just said he's preaching to unsafe people, but you will notice at the beginning of verse 2, 
what do you find? Brothers and fathers hear me. That's an interesting statement. The fathers are referring to who? The council, the Sanhedrin, right? But the brothers, guess who is probably, uh, uh, brothers are probably referring to, who do you think? The Hellenistic Jews that are part of the church. They're there too. They want Stephen dismantled. Not physically, but they want his argument dismantled. Because they're opposing him, aren't they? That's what we saw in chapter 6. And Stephen, in effect, even though these, these Hellenistic Jews are part of the church, it's in effect, Stephen's preaching to him as if they're what? Saved or lost? Lost. He's preaching to them as if they're lost. So then, what, is, what does Stephen do? In his message, he immediately, as, a, as a, one of the Hellenistic Jews, because we already saw that he was, he begins to unpack the Old Testament, doesn't he? And he starts right in the very beginning, doesn't he? I mean, he doesn't start with creation, but he starts with the beginning of the what? The Hebrew people, doesn't he? He starts with Abraham, right away, doesn't he? The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. So he starts with, what do you think he starts with Abraham? Sorry? He's the father of their faith, right? He, and, and, and he's the one that the people look up to, right? He and, who are the two people that the, that the people in this day looked up to? Exactly, Abraham and Moses. He's going to introduce Moses in just a little bit, won't he? So those are the two right there. Now there's other, other characters in the story. Jacob, Joseph, the, the twelve patriarchs. They're, they're all there, but the key ones are Abraham and Moses. And Moses becomes the front and center one as we work our way through. Why does he do this? What Stephen is doing is Stephen is communicating to the, the, the people who are judging him that he's not some clueless guy. If I may just say this. He's starting off by pointing out to them that he knows what he's talking about. And it's important that he does because what he does in a little bit is dependent upon knowing the Old Testament. And what's interesting, we're going to discover very quickly that he understands the Old Testament in a radically different way than the Sanhedrin do. And the council does. And even the Hellenistic Jews do. He understands it in a radically different way, but it's appropriate and important that we see right off the bat, we just read it, you can sense that he knows the intricacies of the Old Testament, doesn't he? You, you can't get a sense that he has a real good working knowledge of the Old Testament. He, he can work it all through, he can talk it all through, he can explain it, and, and then he can, he can, he can uh, fold into it prophecy and all sorts of other things. He's, he's very gifted time, investment, the spirit at work, right? And all that to produce a great knowledge of the scriptures. Very important. So, he goes on and he begins to talk about the history and an important reason why, and we're not going to touch any of that. We're going to flip over uh, and work our way through, jumping way down here. Um, so Jacob goes to Egypt, and that whole story of, of the famine. Um, let's see. The people, people in large number later on, and then they become slaves. Right? We all know the story, right? Verse 23. So we're taking a big leap. I'm assuming you understand the history that we just covered. It's primarily just an explanation of history, a review, as it were. But everything begins to change in verse 23. It still seems like he's talking about just the normal history, but he begins to introduce things that are radically different. When he, I'm going to read it again. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So he did what? He killed the guy, right? He being a Hebrew, although identifying as a, as a what? Egyptian in Pharaoh's household, he goes to visit his true kin, right? And when he sees him, he, see, he sees some kin, he sees one of them being oppressed, and he kills the guy who's oppressing him, and the guy he kills is, a, is a, an Egyptian. Verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but he did not understand. Verse 25 is an interesting 
statement. And it begins the introduction of what Stephen really wants to talk about. I'm going to read it again. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Let me read it to you again with emphasis. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. This is a really important choice of words by Stephen as he is presenting his defense. Because could I just submit to you, nowhere in this text, we read 53 verses, nowhere in this 53 verses does Stephen defend himself. He's supposed to be giving his defense. Nowhere, not one single word is there a defense of himself. Which is what you'd expect, wouldn't you? Instead, as he works his way through history, and he starts talking about Moses, one of the first things he says that's interesting, which probably was not interesting at all to the hearers at this point in time, was this statement, he supposed his brothers would understand that God was bringing or giving them salvation by his hand. Because if you know the history... Did not Moses give them salvation from Egypt? Of course, but this guy missed it, right? He assumed that he'd get that. But it says he didn't get it. But Stephen is not talking about that. Oh, he is, but only in a secondary way. The way the, the Sanhedrin and all the hearers would be thinking about it is, of course, just like you and I just did. Of course, he, he, was, he thought that, that they would understand that as, as bringing salvation, or to use a different term, a picture of the salvation that was about to happen, even though Moses really didn't know what that was going to happen himself, right? Because he hadn't gotten to the burning bush yet, right? But he supposed that they would get the, the, So in Moses' th thinking, it was salvation, what? What kind of salvation? Big or small? Really small. Salvation from the guy who was oppressing him. Not even a picture of, of rescue from Egypt. It's just from the oppression. Right? It's like a one-to-one -one salvation type of thing. In a moment in time for a specific situation. And that's probably primarily what the people who were hearing Stephen's message would have heard. Some may very well have seen it as a picture of the salvation that was about to come from Egypt. Okay? Neither one are on, on let me change that, neither one are primary in Stephen's argument here. Because notice what happens next. And the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and trying to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Now follow me on this, listen. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Now, instead of me explaining what just happened, we'll just continue to read. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became a father of two sons. Now, when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. This is when Moses starts to find out what his role is. Correct? When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have come, I'm sorry, and have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them, and now... Come, I will send you to Egypt. Verse 45. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent both as ruler and deliverer or redeemer. What did Stephen just say? 
before we even got to that, what is Stephen saying? The, the, the Sanhedrin and the Jews are thinking Moses absolutely redeemed that guy, right? That guy from oppression. And then that was kind of a picture, right? Of God redeeming, rescuing, saving the children of Israel from Egypt. What's Stephen trying to present? Yes, he's trying to present to, to, to set up the whole storyline and in effect setting up the whole council and all these Jews who are oppressing it who are against him. So you missed the whole point. You, in knowing the storyline like the back of your hand, Jews, with regard to Moses, in knowing it like the back of your hand, you missed it completely. Because the story of Moses freeing that oppressed, that, that guy who was being oppressed, and freeing, in a, a little bit, freeing the Jews from slavery, Moses is a picture of something far greater, is what Stephen is arguing. Moses is an appropriate, at this point in time, picture, foreshadowing, as it were, of the promised Redeemer, is what, is what Stephen is arguing. You see, because there's a, a dramatic shift now here from here to the end of the argument of Stephen. This shift is completely off of the acceptable understanding of recorded biblical history at this point in time. What Stephen says is, when we think about Moses, Sanhedrin, council, and all these Jews, the way you need to see Moses is he's a redeemer. He is the prototypical picture of the Redeemer who has been promised, of Jesus Christ, the one who was yet to come, and at this point in time for Stephen had already come. Very important. Why is this so important? Because the one who was, who was being oppressed, and then, and then Moses set him free, assuming that God would view him as bringing what? Salvation, the word salvation there, right? Bringing salvation. Instead, when he appears to him next, just a short time later, he says what to him? He says, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Verse 27. He brings salvation, that is the picture of salvation, right? The oppressor is upon him, and the correct me if I'm wrong, but the oppressor has all power, and the Jew has no power, correct? Because the oppressor is Egyptian, and, as in the, the honored class, and the Jew is what? A slave with no class. So the Jew has no recourse. And Abraham comes there and brings salvation. And his response is what? Who made you ruler and judge? Who gave you authority? Why should I listen to you? Isn't that exactly what he's saying? Why should I follow you? Why should I submit to you? And in missing the point completely... The guy who has received the salvation from the oppressor says what? Are you kidding me next? It's a stunning statement. Continuing what we just read. Um, verse 35 again. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, became what? What does it say? Ruler and redeemer. He shifts it, doesn't he? Who made you be ruler and judge? And Stephen shifts it and says, God made him to be ruler and redeemer. Now, you know what Stephen's about to do. 
because there, what he, let me just give you an intro to it, what has happened up to this point in time, now we're coming up to the modern time, Stephen's modern time, what are the Sanhedrin in effect saying about Jesus? Who made him ruler and judge? And Stephen is about to say, Jesus is ruler and redeemer. And, and Moses is just a picture of it. And just like that oppressor, that, that guy who was being oppressed, rejected Moses, the one who brought salvation, Stephen's now going to shift and present Jesus this way. So let's follow through again, going back to 30, uh, 35. Uh, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man sent as both, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to be him in the bush. This man led them out, promising, referring to Moses, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness, in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, now listen, God will raise up for you a prophet, what? Like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. What is Moses say? What, is, what is Stephen saying? Moses, he's telling the Sanhedrin, you want to hear this, Sanhedrin? <clears throat> Moses himself, the one you look up to so much, the one you revere, said this, God said, I will send a prophet like this one. Who? Like Moses. Now, in order to understand that statement completely, we have to fold it back into what we just saw. Don't we? What did, what did Moses do? Thinking that this, this formerly oppressed man would see him as the one who brought salvation. Right? So, Moses understood very clearly at this point in time, he is a, a type of the Redeemer. A picture of the Redeemer that had been promised. And what he means when he says here, it's, it, it's loaded, when he says that Moses said, I will send a prophet like me, he's talking about the entirety of the storyline. He's saying, Moses said he's going to send a prophet like me. That is one who first brings, what? Salvation. But also, one who also will be, what? A ruler and a Redeemer, and also one who will be a judge, and one who will be rejected. They said just like me, didn't he? Did he not say he's going to send a prophet just like me? Was Moses rejected? Was he rejected only by the oppressor, or by the one who's being oppressed, I mean? No, he wasn't. Because what happened with Moses? Follow it along. This man, verse 36, led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and in the, at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angels who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us Verse 39, our fathers, what? Refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they what? They turned or returned to Egypt. Whoa. In their heart.
they turn to Egypt, saying to Aaron in verse 40, Make for us gods who will go before us, as for this Moses who led us out, up, led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. We made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol. And we're rejoicing, what does it say? In the work of whose hands? Their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. We'll pick up that in a second. Was Moses only rejected by the, one, by the guy who was being oppressed? No. The very time in Mount Sinai, and by the way, he doesn't mention all the other times, does he? Like, was he rejected before he crossed the Red Sea? Clearly, they opposed him at the Red Sea, right? Before God opened it up. Was he opposed at Mount Sinai? Pretty clear. He was up on top of the mountain, fashioned with God, receiving the oracles, and they're making the golden calf. And turning their backs on him. And all these stands for. Because if you can't miss the point, in the Old Testament, if you turn your back on Moses, according to Stephen, you're what? You're turning back, you're back on, more specifically, Christ. You're turning your back on Jesus Christ because he's a type of Christ. And then we go on. It's not even the text. Stephen just expects the hearers will favor all the rest of them. You know, Korah and all the grumblings and all the rest. Right? I mean, it's everywhere, isn't it? Throughout the, throughout the wanderings, it's constant. I mean, they even circumcise their children when they're out in the wilderness. Totally turning their back on, on Moses. And so what does it say? And by, by the way, go back to verse 41. So they make the calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. We cannot get off of verse 41 without catching the import of that. Friends, and we need to hear this dramatically, powerfully. What 41 is presenting, if you think it through, here's Mount Sinai. There's a cloud up top of Mount Sinai. The people have seen Moses go up. They can hear the thunderings. The flashing of lightning they can see. And the scripture's already recorded, if you go back to the storyline, that they're down below cowering in fear. They know that that's Yahweh up there, don't they? This is not a storm up on top. They know it's Yahweh up there. But in the rebellion, what happens? Yeah, I know they make the golden calf. They gather all the gold and silver and precious stones that they got from the Egyptians they made a little calf. I get that. Yep. But that's not the emphasis of the text. The emphasis of verse 41 is the rejoicing in the works of their hands. That's a stunning statement. Their great rejoicing is what they've accomplished. What's that? Yes, right there in the shadow of Sinai, right there at the base of Mount Sinai, as the thunder is crashing and the lightning is flashing and the ground is shaking. And they're rejoicing in what? Well, the works of their hands. Now, we can look at this text, verse 41, and say, what a bunch of idiots! Can't we? Can't we? Right? And we can say, what, what's wrong with these people? Can we? What on earth is wrong with these people? And I want to remind you that they were, they were recipients of the covenant. The covenant was being cut for them on top of Mount Sinai by a God who loved them. And in light of that, I just want to remind you, is it any different? Is it any different for us who claim to be Christians today when our great rejoicing 
is in the work of our hands, as it were. Is it any different? Oh, we don't have Mount Sinai, do we? We don't have a, a Mount Sinai. The ground is shaking, and the, the lightning is flashing, and we can see the lightning flashing, and the, and the thunder is rumbling, and we can feel it, and we can hear it, and we can see it. We don't have that, do we? But we, we have the revealed Word of God, don't we? We have the Spirit at work, don't we? And these people, and isn't it even greater than Mount, Mount Sinai? We have the whole Word of God. Isn't that greater than Mount Sinai? I mean, for Peter, it was greater than, than, than the Mount of Transfiguration, which is just like a, ba a basic redo, isn't it? From Mount Sinai? And for Peter, in 2 Peter 1, he says, you have the word of God more sure. And yet, what happens most times for Christians, we do the exact same thing, don't we? As the people that we look down on in Mount Sinai, when we find our great rejoicing is what? The works of our hands. Or maybe it's the works of other people's hands. People we respect. But it's not where it should be, is it? Where should the children of Israel have been, worship-wise, rejoicing-wise, there in Mount Sinai? They should have been on their faces in fear and worship of a holy God who came to be with men for a short period of time. Shouldn't they? Shouldn't they have been? But no. They build a golden calf and bow down and worship. They fell on their faces, all right. But they bowed down in rejoicing over the works of their hands. Stephen then moves on from that in this, this defense, not of himself, but of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. When he says in verse 42 and following, but God turned away. Could I just stop on those words for a second? And let the import and the power of those words, if I may use the terms, let the import of those words shake the ground you stand on. Let those words thunder for you. Let those words flash like lightning for you. Because they need to. Because God doesn't change, does he? But God turned away and did what? Gave them over to worship the host of heaven. Host of heaven here is not referring to God and his angels. It's talking about he gave them over to worship the stars, as it were. You want to worship other gods? You want to worship? You want to practice idolatry? Fine. I'll turn away from you. And you will worship these other gods. To worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness of the house of Israel? Let me stop on that question. Real briefly, just say this. Yes, they did. It seems like a really weird question for Stephen to ask as he quotes the Old Testament. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness of the house of Israel? Yes, they did. They did sacrifice. They had a tabernacle with them. They did sacrifice. But what does he say in verse 43? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephem and the images that you made to worship and I'll send you into exile beyond Babylon. You know, you know what the Old Testament prophet is saying, and Stephen's quoting. He's saying, "Did you, in effect, did you, did you sacrifice? Yes, but your heart was elsewhere. Oh, you did the physical sacrifices. You took the animal. You slit its throat, or burned it, or whatever the case may be, depending on the sacrifice. You did bring sacrifices." But your heart was with Moloch. 
Your heart was with weapon. That's where your heart was, as evidenced by the Golden Calf event. They didn't learn, did they? Even though 20-some thousand died. They didn't learn. And the images you made to worship are referring to all the images that were representing all the gods of Egypt, by the way. And so the promise of God to the children of Israel was, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Before we get off this, this text and move on to the next section, Again, I want to, I, we cannot keep this a mere history lesson. What do we find in the text? Ultimately, the children of evil, the uh, children of Israel, the covenant people. It's important that we see that the covenant people were denying the picture of the Redeemer. They were rejecting the, the picture of the Redeemer. The Redeemer picture before them, Moses, they're rejecting him over and over and over again. And giving themselves away to other gods, other idolatry, until God says, I will give you over to it. And if we keep that mere history, we miss the point, because God does not change, friends. The point of the story resonates down through the tunnel of time to, to today. And Stephen is declaring the Redeemer is a fact. The Redeemer has come. That's what he's arguing for, isn't he? This one, this prophet is going to come just like Moses. He's going to argue just saying he's come. And yet for God's people, that is, those who presume to be God's people, probably the best way to put it, the people who presume to be God's people are doing the stuff of worship, aren't they? Well, that's what the prophet said. You're doing the stuff of worship. You're, you're sacrificing. But your hearts are elsewhere. Your hearts are after Moloch and Raphan and all the gods you've created. And if we take that and, and allow it to flow down through the tunnel of time to today, there are people who presume to be children of the living God. Are there not? There are people today who would absolutely argue they are believers in Jesus Christ, that they are redeemed, that they are saved people, that they are heaven-bound. And they do the stuff of worship. But their hearts are after other things. Can I just present to you from Stephen's argument here? Those people only presume. That's all they do. And all through history, there's been a predominance of people who presume. Or to use the term the Puritans use, who profess Christ, but they don't possess Christ. And that's exactly what Stephen's talking about. That's why in Matthew, Jesus says, there'll be many in that day who will say, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because they presume to be believers. But their hearts are far from Jesus. That's not possible in the scriptures. Because he gives us a new heart. It's not possible to be this. These are not redeemed people. There's only a faithful remnant. It didn't say remnant. There's only a remnant that will be saved. That's not what it says. Right? It says there's only a what? Faithful remnant that will be saved. That's what it says. That's what the scriptures declare. Here we have a group of people who are not faithful. And they, what happens to them? They haul off to Babylon, don't they? In the, in the prophecy, they get hauled off to Babylon. The ones in the wilderness that came out of Egypt, what happened to all those adults? They died. They perished. They didn't enter into, their ra into his rest, did they? Right? We saw in Hebrews. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it 
according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nation that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And then Stephen turns and quotes the prophets again. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You know what is left unsaid? Is the answer to the questions that the prophet asked. Isn't it? Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? You see, the, the, defend, the, the thing he's defending is they said he's after Moses and after the law and after what? The temple, right? Here he quotes the prophet and says what? You really think that's my house? Serious? What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, and what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Like, that's not my house. You know what the answer to this dilemma is? Those aren't my houses. Those, that is not my house. Quite to the contrary, the thing that Stephen doesn't present here, according to the scriptures, God's house is what? In the New Testament, what is the temple of God? No, the people. Redeemed people. And that's not these people. That's not these people. Yes, exactly. Which brings us to 51. Stephen has now completed his defense. He has nothing else to say. He has clearly showed something, hasn't he? He showed, firstly, that Moses was a picture of Jesus, the Redeemer. A clear picture. And they missed it. And their fathers missed it. And they accused him. Who? And, and, and questioned him in an accusatory way. Who made you judge and ruler? And Stephen points out that God made him judge and what? Judge and redeemer. And what do the people do when he finally brings the salvation promise, the intermediate salvation, the salvation picture to them, and brings them and bring them out of Egypt, out of slavery, which Hebrews makes very clear the picture of salvation. How do they treat their for lack of a better term, because it's a biblical term, how do the children of Israel treat their Redeemer from Egypt? They oppose him and reject him over and over and over again. And here's what's really interesting about the rejection, friends. This is really crucial. Do they reject him? Absolutely. But in their rejection, is there not? Now hear this. In their rejection, is there not still a semblance of following? Isn't there? Are they not still following Moses through the wilderness? You know why? You know why they're following Moses through the wilderness? Because if they leave him, what will happen to them? They'll die. There's no water. There's no food. If they're with Moses, there's manna. And when there's no water, water falls out of a rock, which is a whole other picture, by the way. So what's striking is in rejecting the picture of redemption, Moses, they still have a semblance of following him. You see, we think rejection of, of our Redeemer is what? Complete ignoring and complete rejecting and not following in any way and living a, a completely pagan life. That's rejecting our Messiah, right? Well, yeah, it is. But that's not what Stephen's talking about. Stephen's talking about something much more subtle. 
They're rejecting the picture of the Redeemer, yet still following the picture of the Redeemer, but for all the wrong reasons. Yes, but Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, they have a form of religion, but they deny its power. Absolutely. It's a stunning perspective. And then he takes that picture of Moses and he makes it really clear in just a little bit. He's already stated it. There's going to be a prophet like me, right? Including all the rejection and everything. Salvation offered, redemption offered, but rejection. Correct? That's what he said. But now he pulls out all the stops at the end of his message. He's made his complete defense. And now he's just going to point out that he's talking about them. What does he say? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which one of the prophets did your, your fathers not persecute? And this is the part we always camp on, right? But we don't see it as context. Which of your fathers, so which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now what? Betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, it's an interesting statement. Stiff-necked in that just like their fathers rejected the picture of, uh, of, the, of the Redeemer, they ha have and are continuing to reject the actual Redeemer. Correct? And being as religious as they are, and doing all of the trappings and form of religion, they're rejecting the fulfiller of it. They're, as a result, uncircumcised in heart and ears. They just don't, what? Get it. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And he says again, as your fathers did, so do you. Your fathers did it, rejecting Moses. You're doing it, rejecting the picture that Moses presented. Rejecting the, 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 the conclusion of it, Jesus Christ. They, he keeps going back from they and you, they and you. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. And you killed the actual one that was announced. That's what he's saying. They killed the ones who were announcing it was coming. He was coming. You killed the one who actually came. And in case they missed it, he says, You, verse 33, who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, nobody kept the law, right? But that's not what, that's not what he's talking about here. You know what the true keeping of the law is, according to Stephen? The true keeping of the law is not keeping every little piece of it. The true keeping of the law is keeping the one who it's pointing towards. Yes, and trusting the one who fulfilled it. The keeping of the law is a perfect is perfectly understood as being focused upon, captivated by, enthralled by, and worshiping and bowing down to the one who fulfilled it, who came to fulfill the law. And he says, You didn't do that. Instead, you what? You killed him. Now again. We would be remiss in, in, in handling this text if we didn't see the entirety of the text as pointing to Jesus Christ. And, and, and in seeing, as we already talked about, how easy it is to be deceived. How absolutely easy, friends, it is to be deceived. Into thinking we are doing well. Into thinking that we are secure in thinking that we are redeemed, in thinking that we are free from judgment because the judgment was poured upon Jesus. It's very easy to be deceived. It's very easy to be in the same position that God said to Moses about the people at Mount Sinai that Stephen doesn't mention 
doesn't mention when when God said, "I hear their words and their good words, their right words, their correct words." But oh, how I wish their hearts mirrored that. Oh, how I wish their hearts mirrored that. That, friends, is redemption. That is redemption. Redemption, being redeemed, being saved, means we're being taken from death to life. It means we are taken from having a cold, stony heart to having what? A soft, fleshy heart. Being taken from someone who despises and rejects him and turns his own way, which, by the way, is exactly where the Jews always were, by and large, weren't they? Having the form of it, as you quoted, Tom, from Second Timothy 3. Having the form of it, having the trappings of it, having the activity of it, but their hearts are far from it. But that's not the presentation of scriptures of being a believer, a true believer. The, the, the presentation of scriptures of being a true believer is someone who has, who was someone who despised and rejected and turned from him and went his own way, and now he turns and he follows. Doesn't he? He turns to his Redeemer and no longer is rejoicing in what? The works of his own hands, but finds himself by the Spirit at work in his new heart, his fleshy heart. He finds himself or herself doing what? Rejoicing in the works of God's hands. It's a shift, friends, in the Scriptures. It's a dramatic shift in the Scriptures. To not be someone who finds their rejoicing in the works of the Redeemer and the, the person who is a Redeemer. And not to be a person who is enthralled with and worships God. But merely be someone who has the trappings of Christianity is to be someone who is doomed. To be someone who is condemned. To be someone, to quote this text, who God turns his face away from. Now he says here, God, verse 42, turned away. And when he says God turned away here, it's a, I didn't say this then, I'll say it now. When it says God turned away, it should ring in our head for something, doesn't it? You see, in the Old Testament, God had his, he promised to, to provide either blessing or what? Cursing. Blessing of people follow the law, cursing they don't. But following the law can only be accomplished in Christ, right? By following Christ, the one who fulfilled the law. So when God says here, he turned away, it's, the idea is he turned his face of blessing away from the people and turned his face of cursing on the people. That's why he says he sent him off to Babylon. It's the same thing that happened to Jesus on the cross, isn't it? My God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he took on the curse. But for those who, who don't find themselves because of Christ's cross work and resurrection, for people who don't find themselves with a new heart, and all of the evidences of that, the only thing left is what? The curse. God what? Turning his face away. Now next week, Lord willing, we're going to see the people's response to that. We're not going to go there this week. But the challenge for you and I is, again, not to look at this as a history lesson. It is. But to recognize that this is how God works. This is how God works. This is what God does. This is how God responds to people. This is how God deals with people. We're either in Christ or we're not. And it doesn't matter. It does not matter 
how well we act it. It does not matter how many entrappings we have of Christianity in our lives, friends. Because you may deceive me, or I may deceive you. We may deceive one another. But the promise of God is that he is not deceived. He just isn't. Never was, and never will be. For those who are truly his children, he never turns his face away. Amen? He never turns his face away. Why? Because he turned his face away from Jesus on the cross. But for those who are in him, who are truly redeemed, the face of God will never turn away. Curse will never come. But for those with all the entrappings, no matter how skillful we are, God will turn his face away. Let us be people who seek him while he may be found. Let us be people, corporate and individual, who call upon him while he is near. Because there will be a time when he is not. And all hope will be gone. Let us seek him while he may be found. Because if we seek him with all our heart, he promises us we will find him. Amen? The warning of Stephen is stark. And it can't be missed. Let us seek him. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> Open our eyes firstly to see you. And seeing you, help us to see ourselves. Draw us to yourself. We ask you to make it evident, the truth evident in us. You said in First John that these things were written in that we may know we have eternal life. Work in our hearts so that the things John talks about in First John will be the things of our lives flowing from the Spirit at work in our lives. We ask you to move mightily. We need you. We need your work. Help us to be people who rejoice in the works of your hands. In your name I pray. Amen.